Hello and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. So we're at the midpoint of 2023, making this the perfect time to take stock on the major trends shaping the retail banking industry globally and to look ahead to the future. You know, a multitude of events this year have altered the industry's trajectory, influenced by consumer behavior, and prompted financial institutions to reassess their business models and their go-to-market strategies. The question is, which events have had a lasting effect and what gaps exist between what financial institutions are delivering and what the customers really want? I'm really excited to have David Beer, CEO of 11FS, on the Bank and Transform podcast. We'll be discussing how banks and credit unions have reacted to the major global disruptions and what major opportunities and threats currently exist in retail banking. So I'm thrilled to have David Beer joining me today. I've known David for almost a decade, and he is the acclaimed industry analyst and digital banking transformation leader based in the UK, where he keeps his finger on the pulse of banking innovation worldwide. So welcome to the show, David. You know, interestingly, despite knowing each other for almost a decade, this is the first time either one of us have been on each other's podcast together. You know, for those of my audience who are not familiar who you are or 11FS, can you provide a short synopsis of your background as well as your firm's? Yeah, no problem at all. And thank you very much for having me on, Jim. Uh, as you say, f- first time podcast sort of co-guests on something together, but uh, lots of chats in lots of far-flung places, haven't we, which has been fun. But uh, uh, so I'm David Breer. I'm the group CEO here at 11FS. Uh, Prior to 11FS, I ran uh, Gartner's Global Digital Banking Capability. Uh, Before that, a big Indian offshoring uh, digital banking capability. And then before that, a big bank's transformation. So I've, I've sort of been steeped in financial services for uh, as long as I can remember, really. Um, I should say to anybody listening to this, very much wasn't my career trajectory that I was expecting. Like, uh, I'm by yeah. no mean, despite being a banker, was no mo- definitely not meant to be one. Uh, I was very happy playing uh, sports uh, semi-professionally. And fortunately, one bad uh, maneuver and uh, three ligaments in my left knee later and uh, and I had to get a proper job so uh, but I had a hell of a lot of fun uh, started the business seven and a half years ago now uh, we have built uh, 12 propositions around the world now actually so uh, which is super exciting uh, built brand new challenger banks for people like NatWest in the UK with Metal uh, Standard Chartered over in Hong Kong and Singapore things like Mox with those guys uh, and even over in the US as well with uh um, our friends over at uh, FMBO uh, building out uh, Millie, uh, a challenger bank that we built uh, in the Midwest in the US. Yeah, and 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 it has to be said that um, I referenced it, but David also has a team that puts on some of the best podcasts in the industry on every subject, range from crypto to trends. And and if if you haven't caught it already, make sure you check out Eleven FS's podcasts. They're excellent. He's he's got more uh, listens than anybody in the industry in the financial services industry, I believe. But um, you know, as I mentioned before the, at, at the introduction of this episode, David, a ton has happened in the banking industry so far in 2023, not to mention since the pandemic. You know, as a global industry observer, what significant trends or events have really shaped retail banking in the last few years? You know, how have these impacted banks worldwide and what lessons have been learned from these experiences? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a been a fascinating journey, isn't it? Really, uh, I think. Um, I mean, even since really the financial crisis back in two thousand and eight, the the cycle is just yeah. about resetting itself now with everything that we're seeing. But but it is an amazing one. There's often a sort of boom and bust when it comes to financial services, but the the cycle of boom and bust around people really looking to take advantages of that as well are almost uh, sort of eighteen months to two years after it. Uh, I mean, the the rise of the amazing things that we saw in fintech, you know, in 2010, 2011, off the back of the financial crisis, really are why we're all in jobs today. You know, the the Monzos, the Starlings, the Revoluts in the UK taking advantage of that regulatory change. Uh, and actually, I mean, really what we're feeling today, whether it's the, you know, the rippling out of, uh, you know, faster payments capability over in the US or whether it's yeah. open data capability over in Australia, then actually the those ripples are still hitting different shores. Um, but one thing's for sure, I, I mean, I think the the customer is in a much better place now than they ever were. And, and most of that is down to really having real competition in the market. Um, you know, digital for us, and, and this really is the the thesis of the business when uh, myself and, and Jason and a, a few other people sat down, you know, back in 2016 to start the business, is that really financial services don't understand digital at all. And, and because when people say digital, they think, okay, well, you know, I have a website or there's an app, but but digital is more a, a manifestation of your operating capability than it is anything else. And really that's the that's the thing that we've seen really be the the biggest involvement in in financial services is that that shift from slow moving two year three year big bets transformation cycles to actually trying to embrace fundamentally a, a test and learn mentality because actually if you're betting what's going to be interesting in three years to your customers you're probably going to be wrong but if you're betting in three weeks from now and you have the ability to to make that change and do that and put that feature in the hands of consumers you're probably going to be more likely to be right and and obviously that changes your risk profile it changes your investment portfolio as well and everything where that really really goes with that so that shift from a uh, a waterfall analog mentality to a always on, always testing, always learning uh, has really been amazing, and and that's really what we've been doing with customers. You know, whether again, whether it's metal or mocks, the manifestation of those things are different. You know, a, you wouldn't think a retail bank in Hong Kong is similar to an SME bank in uh, in the UK, or you know, or a retail bank in uh, in the Midwest in the US, but fundamentally underneath them is a digital operating model. And that is the biggest thing that I think banks can really get to grips with. You know what, David, you, you said so much in there, it's hard to unpack it because underneath everything you're saying is number one, you know, while we think it's what reaches the customer, the top of glass experience, it's really the under the glass, the back office transformation. That's the most important because you can't make the top of glass really work if you haven't fixed the under underpinnings. You know, on top of that, you know, we've gone through a period of massive technological change and technological advancements, but probably the most important of which has been the composability of solutions where you can take these solutions and not have to reset the entire you know, platform, you can do it in pieces, which wasn't even possible at, at the beginning of your company. You, know, you, were, you were talking about it very early in your company's existence, the ability to fix individual components to make you more of a digital bank. And, you know, 
you, you know, you talk about that, uh, the, the whole fintech world, the, the transformation is only 1%. I think it's 1% finished. I may be wrong. Yeah. It might be 2%. But, you know, what's interesting is that really hasn't changed. As much of advancements as we've had, we still are playing a massive game of catch up. What Definitely. do you see is the thing that holds back organizations the most from making the changes that you and I both talk about virtually every day? Yeah, I, I think um, initially what I would say to that, I mean, is is the it's really difficult. Uh, you know, don't don't get me wrong, and and you know, having been in a big bank. Yeah. You know, I know there's no banks out there who are like, oh, you know, I just don't get this. Like this internet thing, it'll never catch. You know, people are not yeah. like that, right? They, but, know, but it. The, the they know it. Yeah, yeah. But but the reality, I think, of the situation is that um, for many organisations, the thing that has made them successful becomes the way. Uh, and actually, the the challenge with that is your existing business models, the way in which you structure your organisation, fundamentally gets eroded in a world where digital isn't just the manifestation of the thing that you've done before, but a, a rethinking of actually how you fundamentally serve customers. Um, this is going to be difficult for a podcast, but bear with me, everybody listening to this. We we sort of think about the world as four layers. There's the the basis of the rails that underpin it. That's the, the money movement around the world. Uh, above that, you have where traditional financial institutions build uh, products. So these are products like financial instruments in the way that your your regulator would understand them. But interestingly and increasingly, the things that are, are, are more compelling in a digital world are the services that go above that. You know, fundamentally, what problem does this solve for us? And then beyond that, the journeys in which you embed those services. Now, the difficulty is there is that banks are really, really good at, don't get me wrong, like MasterCard, uh, Visa, Amex, Rails, like they get those, then that's great. We can we can commoditize those. We can push them down the stack. Uh, and actually, we've seen you know similar examples in mobile network operators in other industries. You know, it used to be Sprint and Verizon ruled the world and could dictate to handset manufacturers what they had on their handsets. Gone are those days, right? You know, now actually they're just that little icon in the corner of your iPhone. You don't really care what those things are, right? Um, but actually those financial instruments are the way in which banks understand. And actually, fundamentally, they're not just what they understand in terms of tweaking the interest rates or uh, you know, your APRs on those things, but but fundamentally they're the monolithic structures in which they set PLs, that they create department structures, that they incentivize people along. So no surprise really that as customers who are consuming all of these things, you get a striated experience. You get people trying to sell you a credit card, people trying to sell you a checking account, people trying to give you an investment advice. So the slices of all of this isn't how consumers want to consume these things. Um, increasingly, and this is something that, I mean, it's been an absolute privilege over the last uh, you know, seven and a half years to do, we're a big jobs to be done believer, uh, the Clayton Christensen methodology. If you, we've done, you know, jobs to be done frameworks in like say Singapore and New York and sub-Saharan Africa, what you find in all of that, uh, that is amazing, is that the the gap increasingly is widening between the problems that consumers really have and the services, the, the financial instruments, those products that banks are really providing. And the thing yep. in between those is an amazing 
just a voyage. You find uh, crazy spreadsheets or bits of paper or just bizarre financial processes that that customers are creating just to get through the brutal realities of day-to-day lives. And that's amazing. What we were finding, those services for organizations who could create those services in the middle, then actually what you're bringing is bizarrely some of the the traditional values of financial services, that that those people who understand you and can help you, that don't create barriers through complicated, you know, uh, obfuscating words for, you know, fancy financial terms, but but break it down into simple ways that can actually help you. You know, I think really through, as you said, you know, we say digital banking is only 1% finished because fundamentally with all of the investment in in digitizing banking, really what we've got to is a, a self-service terminal on a tiny screen we carry around in our pockets. And, and that's not enough. You know, that isn't really... You know, right. if algorithms can drive cars, then, you know, why are we still getting charged when we trip over into our overdraft if we've got money on our savings? It just, it doesn't make sense. So, so I think the, that shift and those, those four layers, um, increasingly, if, if banks and FIs more broadly want to play in that services piece, they want to play in those journeys. They want to, you know, embed finance into, to where it's really relevant to, to solve real problems then it requires a completely different way of thinking. It requires a, a very different way of operating. Um, but that's exciting. You know, that the flip of saying digital banking is only 1% finished is that we've got 99% of the journey, right? And that for me is the, I mean, Jim, it's when we've talked a lot before, this is why we get out of bed, right? The the excitement in what the future could be if we made it. Yeah. And 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 I have to admit, we both benefit from the fact that only 1% is done because we, we're helping on the other 99%. Um, you know, it's interesting because at the end of the day, <clears throat> it takes leadership. I mean, think about the banks you're working with. They're the most progressive leaders that are willing to embrace change, are willing to rethink what banking means, not at the fun- fundamental level, but how we implement against it. I mean, you brought up the the things that are broken, and, and I just last week, went to my bank and said, you know, am I missing something? Because every month I have to write a check from my business account to my personal account to transfer funds because you don't make it easy for me to transfer a significant amount of money every month from one account to another. And I said, am I missing something? Can you do it? They said, "Uh, no. I said, okay, let me give you another question then. I said, I'm dealing with Acorns, a, a, an automatic deposit process, but they use Plaid as their go-between. Do you support Plaid? He goes, no. This is a top six bank in the U.S. that doesn't support Plaid because of risk profiles. It's the mentality of risk avoidance versus risk management, which, as you know, working in, in with banks globally, that's a big deal. There's a major mind shift there. But Definitely. you also have the challenge that these these leaders have never not been successful in the last 30 years. They brought home great earnings for their shareholders. They've avoided risks. They have avoided the major pitfalls of the 2008s and the 2020s. And they feel pretty heady about themselves. But the customer's not satisfied, which is why consumers are, are attriting silently and using different solutions, but they're having to use so many different solutions to get to where they want to go. It's not efficient. You know, you know, we talked about it before we got on the air, how the economic vol- vol- uh, volatility 
economic volatility over the last couple of years has actually had a bigger impact on financial services than COVID did in many ways. How have you seen the concern about the economy changing the strategic priorities and the tech investments in the banking world? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, um, I mean, interestingly, firstly, negative, secondly, positive. Uh, I mean, I'd say the back end of uh, 2022 and then, you know, rolling over into 23, the the sort of rumors around, you know, the obviously from a, a global perspective, the, you know, any student out there doing some sort of pest analysis or pestle analysis right now has a lot to write about, right? Because there is political instability, there is economic problems happening, there's social uprises, you know, there's everything you could, every box you could tick in terms of happening right now. If you throw in a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of big banks uh, going, you know, under due to, uh, you know, the, the the times that we're sort of facing. And, and you know, I said this off air, but, you know, um, Silicon Valley Bank is a, you know, a very big organization in that sense, but Credit Suisse over in Switzerland is is huge, you know, and, and the the legacy that that brings and actually the the instability, the, the domino effect that that has on not necessarily other banks going through similar things, but just the risk appetite of those organizations. I think it's been interesting to almost see we've sort of reset the cycle again coming out of it. Um, what I would say, yeah. though, is unlike the financial crisis in 2008, that was it was pretty much every bank and every slice of banking had that problem at that time. Um, because we're in a situation where we've got, I mean, we sort of, in the UK, uh, there's a whole generation of people who didn't know what interest rates were because we didn't see them for you know 15 years. So so bizarrely in retail banking, we never had to generate savings. I mean, we have yeah. financial institutions now that go, oh my gosh, I've got to figure out how to generate savings that aren't just coming in at, at, by the will and not having to pay for them. You know, and now they're rethinking because they have competition for those savings accounts. Yeah, H hasn't happened for quite a while. Well, and, it, and that changes the, I mean, the spreadsheet that every organization was being run on fundamentally changes when those numbers, you know, 10x in that sense. And and actually the, you know, the interesting thing in terms of the economics of actually how the, the business works means actually there's been sort of a weird staging to the problem. Um, there've been part of banking organizations that have got more justification for doing transformations than ever before. If you look at mortgage businesses or, I mean, if you look at wealth businesses, the, you know, serving ultra high net worth or serving the, the private banking uh, level, then actually they can really justify investment. But if you're in retail banking or you're in SME banking where, you know, huge amounts of defaults were taking place and lots and lots of problems, then actually it's it's almost a, a real dichotomy of, of opportunity in that sense. Um, but really what we've seen coming out of it, you know, H1 this year, I think has been difficult for a lot of organizations, but H2 seems to be that the, the people are kind of not only coming out of their their shells now, feeling a little bit more confident. Yep. The the financial results from everybody's perspective is looking, you know, pretty good. You know, I think there's almost the the storm has been weathered mentality. Um, from what we're seeing, people are really trying to connect with what their purpose is. I think there's a lot of people coming out going, look, customers' lives have fundamentally shifted, and therefore, do we really now know what they need? Um, and do we know enough about what they need more than our competitors do in order to serve that more effectively? Um, so uh, yeah, it's been a funny year for sure. 
Um, but I suspect the back end of this year and uh, and twenty twenty four will will be good. Um, not just for financial services organizations, but but I think for fintech more broadly. I mean, all of the things that you said earlier on around the you know composability of technology. Actually, the really the disruption from fintech is has never really been about B two C. I firmly believe I think it's about B two B. I think the the people who are yeah. most threatened by uh, you know players coming in from a technology perspective are uh, are the incumbent B two B players, and and really the only thing standing in the way of that I think is bank procurement departments being able to confidently procure uh, fintech services. And to your point, the the architecture that's required in big financial services organizations to do that. Uh, once we get to that point, then you know, really, it becomes a lot less risky and a uh, a lot less cheaper for for people to make that level of investment. But uh, again, it's why um, it's why the uh, the exciting parts are, are really still to come. You know, it's interesting. We've seen a a real change in the fintech marketplace. The funding levels are way down. The most successful fintech players right now are ones that are making money. But as you mentioned, we have a whole new marketplace where traditional banks are looking to fintech startups, to establish fintech players, challenger banks, and even third-party solution providers to get them over the hump, to help them solve the problems that are important and to, to stay relative and relevant and competitive in the marketplace today. So what are some of the more successful collaboration models you've seen between traditional banks and fintech firms and what has emerged as a result yeah it's it's um it's fascinating isn't it i mean when you it wasn't so long ago you would point at somebody like bbva and go hey they they get it you know or um you know standard chartered standard chartered have done a lot you know they've built yep. two challenger banks now three if you count ivory coast you know like they've done a a whole heap of different things but I think they're all on a, I think every bank's on sort of a different journey to a certain degree, because it always really sort of depends on where you're starting from to determine really where you are on that journey. And Chase Bank have a, a different culture to contend with than, you know, Goldman Sachs, right? You know, if you've got a, a retail presence, your your operation is going to work really different than you are, you know, a giant wealth manager in that sense. So, so I think really the... Uh, the destination for all of these organizations is is fundamentally different um, in the same way as actually their origin is as, as well. Um, I'd say the the ones that I think are are being most successful, maybe to to sort of uh, play it back in a, a slightly different way, are the ones that are really understanding that uh, there's a big difference to between projects that deliver capabilities and the real evolution that businesses need to go through. Uh, and it goes a little bit back to that digital isn't an app, it isn't a website, it's not a uh, it's not a project or a department, but it's a, a fundamental right. operating model. Um, and I think the ones, uh, and different players are, are trying to create that evolutionary step in different ways. You know, if you look at, um, you know, JP Morgan Chase put Chase over in the UK, uh, you know, a lot of people were like, well, why are you doing that? And actually, it was their third or fourth attempt to do something in in that way. And what were they trying to get away yep. from? They were trying to get away from the incumbent technology, the incumbent culture, the incumbent systems, the incumbent way of thinking. As I say, 35, flo as I say, 35 floors in New York City that are branch-based. 
So they have to yeah. they have to somehow separate the digital men mindset from the analog mindset. Hundred percent. And actually, now that they've done that, actually, is it really about having a little bank in the UK? No, it's not that at all. I mean, the UK is not big enough to even. I mean, we we fit very you know roughly into like one of your smallest states over in the US, right? So size of customers is not the interesting thing, but actually. In the same way as you, you know, you when you're cooking, you scale things gradually. You know, you don't make a gigantic swimming pool of soup and put all of the salt in the same time, do you? You do it gradually as you're making sure you're getting to taste the the thing that you really need. Now, Chase Bank over in the UK has found product market fit. You know, they not only have found product market fit from a customer's perspective, but from a technological and operational perspective, have discovered the way to run a digital business. Now, if you scale that back into, what is it, 60 million customers or something crazy that Chase have got over in the US? Yeah. I'm probably lowballing it. Like, you know, then actually, well, you've suddenly got a checking account you can run for 5% of the one that you can run in the US, or you've got an operating model that can get from your, you know, your idea to execution in weeks. And for me, that's what people are trying to do. A lot of, a lot of, um, sort of noises made about, well, yeah, but is that profitable or has it acquired enough customers? I think you're missing the point at that stage. I think what people are trying to do is make up for, you know, evolution works because animals and people and things adapt to their environment, therefore stay relevant. What has happened in financial services was uh, we try to stop evolution happening and fix financial services for a very long time. So actually, this level of revolution that's required just kind of gets evolution back on track. And once we've got that that revolutionary step done, then evolution can take over and the iterations, the evolving of the way of doing it really comes to the front. Um, so I'd point to, you know, I think JP Morgan Chase are doing a great job. I think Jamie Diamond, as much as he, you know, uh, pontificates quite regularly about the the world and everything around it. I mean, I can't remember him getting it too far wrong or at least hasn't overcome it with uh, changing his mind and putting his hands up. Um, similarly, you know, Bill Winters over at Standard Chartered, I think the Standard Chartered have got it very right um, in terms of yep. the way in which to get from where they were to really where they want to be was not by just changing, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people at the same time. It was by changing three and letting those three infect everybody else. You know, it's interesting because in those organizations, you just gave an example, they have done, they have been extraordinarily agile and ability to pivot at the same time as they're looking at the long game. I mean, in the US, JP Morgan Chase is still building branches. Why are they building branches? They're building branches as markets where they have an extraordinarily strong credit card base, but without a traditional consumer retail banking base. Well, you put those branches in and you all of a sudden have a way to cross sell other services to your credit card customers in markets you never were. And then you bring your digital model over and you streamline that all and it all makes sense. Now, mind you, money gets you far, but the ability to look in the long term as well as act in the short term has extraordinary power. You know, I'm going to let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, 
innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back. I'm joined today by David Breer, CEO of the award-winning consultancy 11SS and the host and the the thought provider for a number of podcasts that they put on in their firm. So we've been discussing how banks are adapting to marketplace disruption and how innovation and collaboration are key to staying ahead in this ever-changing marketplace. So, so David, before we went to break, we were talking about J.P. Morgan Chase and Chase Bank in the UK, which are vastly different. One's a digital bank. The other one is, while very digital, very much a branch-based organization that's actually building branches in markets that they hadn't had very much penetration in order to serve their credit card customer base. So, you know, you have a lot of experience in this whole branch versus digital model. Do they work together or do you see everything moving to a digital platform? Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? And and you would expect um, you would expect sort of in this period of time, you know, post-COVID, nobody could go to branches. Uh, and and actually, you know, from my perspective, being like a, a digital guy, you would kind of expect me to be anti-branch. But I, I don't think that's realistic, if I'm honest with you. And and actually, I mean, the the research we've done, I mean, even people who have worked in the mortgage industry for 20 years would still want to talk to somebody to make sure they're not messing up a, a self-serve application process in the form. Because, you know, the fear of getting it wrong and messing that up is is much greater than the the upside of getting it right, if that makes sense. So, um, but it goes back to that point we were making earlier on. You know, digital has been about taking people, paper, and premises out of out of the process. It's been about almost dehumanizing financial services, and that that's not great. You know, like normal people walking around on the street. Uh, you know, I don't think really understand the the depth of technical understanding or, you know, even the level of mathematical skills that you need. Uh, I'm going to say maths. You guys say math, don't you? But uh, but the, uh, the the level of mathematical skills that you need to just do basic, uh, uh, you know, APR calculations or percentages. So people need people like people need people to interact with. I think the way in which branches are done in a monolithic structure don't work. Um, so do you need people in banking? hundred percent. Do we need the skill sets of those people contained within the four walls of a, of a branch? I don't think we do in the same way as actually, you know, I want to have the best medical advice, regardless of where I live for whatever ailment I have, then actually I want the best mortgage advice or the best investment advice, or, you know, given the confidence that actually somebody's looking after my finances uh, and that can be done. Look, I mean, you, you're in a completely different place in the world than I am. And we're able to conversate now in this way, in a, you know, a, a good form because of, you know, video conferencing. Um, I think if, Banks were able to share the infrastructure and the both in terms of the cost and in terms of the the upside of of branches more glo- globally or more nationally in terms of their uh, their capabilities. I think the cost structuring of it fundamentally changes and the the level of service that customers actually get fundamentally shifts as well. So so yeah, I'm I'm very pro human banking, um, but um, but it's how it gets done that I think needs to evolve. 
And I think we're going to see that with ChatGPT, interestingly, that the human side of this doesn't go away. It's trying to blend them together. You know, it's interesting also, David, you have an awards program at the end of every year and you, you're, you give awards for innovation and in the fintech space and the banking space. You've been in the space a long time, as I have. And we've seen transformation leaders come and go and, and financial institutions that you know, she said, get it and others that don't, you've mentioned some already. What do you see that innovative financial institutions today do differently that others can learn from? And actually, what sets them apart from the masses? I mean, we can talk about, as you've mentioned, Standard Chartered. We can talk about Chase. We can talk about DBS. We can talk about, you know, certainly We Bank in China. But why do the why aren't there more? You know, I keep on looking and saying, you know, you look at the global awards programs and they tend to be the same names year after year. What makes it different? And why is it so hard for other organizations to grab onto that, that magic sauce? Yeah, I, I think I'd... Um... I think there are I think there are people who try and make themselves feel comfortable, and then there are I think there are people who try and make themselves feel un uncomfortable. Um, and actually, what you sort of find is, um, you know, certain organisations will will create, uh, and it, it's always you know leadership. I, I guess in in any form factor or another, there are leaders out there who are trying to make the world that they exist in today continue, and then there are leaders who are trying to make themselves feel uncomfortable enough that actually they can bend the organization to be relevant to the to the new world the 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 evolutionary steps as we're referring to so i i guess in that construct then you know the the people who are out there uh you know riling against the change are probably the people who are going to be able to understand the change most um because it's understandable again uh, you know i go back to banks have been on a great run you know they've been wildly successful for a really long period of time uh you know back in the days of you know your ledger being a book not even a technology system it was just a big book that you wrote stuff in you know like so you know that was great and the physicality of money the physicality of of service uh was a different world um do you know it's it's been it's been fascinating actually i mean because you you usually will go well, you know, the shareholder pressure and shareholder value and, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, building out uh, things that your customers want, but your shareholders will, you know, stand for. Um, you know, the organization we work with over in the US is a company called F&BO. Uh, and I, I'd never heard of F&BO, you know, before we worked with them. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, Clark, who's the CEO, had never heard of us before we started talking to him either. So that's, you know, it's a, a mutual uh, a mutual piece there. You can't get any more Midwest than that firm, by the way. It's, yeah. It, you know, you take the whole US, you go, find me the center, that company's there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Nebraska, amazing place, like absolutely amazing place. Like Jason, who uh, one of the co-founders of the business went out there to do uh, jobs to be done framework. And I think it was like minus 28 or something ridiculous when he went out there. He loosely says uh, the TV said, if you're outside more than four minutes, you would die, you know, like, so it was, it was cold, <laughs> but, um, but the, the amazing thing around that is, you know, when you sort of see CEOs of, uh, of major banks in any geography, uh, their their view is very short term. You know, it's about actually the different pressures that they've got. 
uh, Clark there, um, you know, first, one of the humblest guys I've ever come across in my entire life. But actually, like, second, he's like fifth generation. I'm probably getting that wrong, but fifth generation CEO, which means when he starts talking about legacy, he's not talking about core systems. He's talking about his great-great-granddad's legacy of making something that fundamentally solved problems for their customers and their and, and more than just their their customers their community you know i think um i think the great thing about the the us system the amount of i mean what is it like 10,000 financial instruments uh, financial institutions but a few less than that but still um, way too many yeah. but it's like 9,600 of them are community banks you know they're they're yeah. sort of single or you know single digit state you know, numbers. And actually the things that they do is about being fundamentally part of that community, you know, understanding the community, understanding the cycles of industry, whether it be agriculture or whatever in, you know, they get to grips with that community and serve it. Um, Like that for me is bizarrely, I, I think coming out of this cycle that we're coming out of now, I think we'll see a swing back to that because I really think the, if community banks, can actually and and you know regional or even some of the you know like FNBO being a more of a super regional, if you can get the the mentality the value system of traditional banking, but actually if you can deliver it for the the economics of digital banking, that is the beautiful marriage that actually I think is the future of financial services because at that point you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting brands that people believe in and that they know believe in their customers' problems and solving their customers' problems, that they know are not going to disappear in two years' time if some VC in Silicon Valley don't believe in their thing anymore. They're going to be there for the long haul, right? Um, and equally, if they can get the the advancements that today's technology can really bring, they can serve those customers in a, a way that they've never done before. So it's um, it really is a beautiful marriage. With that said, I think a lot of financial institutions today are finding it extraordinarily difficult to keep up. They haven't, they haven't really embraced the composable solutions. They mm-hmm. haven't really stepped out of their comfort zone. And we're starting to see some increases in, in the US at least of consolidation. Do you see the competitive landscape changing quite a bit in the next three years? And, and more importantly, do you see a, a, a significant consolidation happening on the horizon that may not just be banks and banks or credit unions and banks or credit unions and credit unions or or fintech and fintech, but maybe fintech banks and, and credit unions or consolidation just overall because of the efficiency. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, definitely the efficiency of, of bringing about scale in that way. Um, but uh, funding is harder to come across, you know, and actually I, I think for the fintechs then, uh, you know, a lot of them are looking at getting out, you know, actually they've got a, there's always the story, isn't there about, you know, is it a, is it a feature? Is it a product? Is it a business? You know, when you go through a, a huge boom of a cycle of investment in fintech, not everything makes it through that cycle. You know, the beachhead of a great feature might develop into a great product, but it might never really get through to that fully formed, sustainable, profitable business. Uh, and therefore, actually, whether you're a, 
a bank or whether you're another fintech looking to acquire either from a technological capability perspective, but but increasingly, and you know, the US and, and Europe uh, particularly were seeing this for regulatory reasons. Actually, you know, some of these regional banks have uh, charters to operate in certain states. Uh, you know, from the UK to the Europe to, to Europe, acquiring a, a European bank gives gives you access to a a much bigger market uh, and actually. You know, scalability, you know, we go back to the point earlier on around somebody like Chase. I mean, actually, I mean, you've got to lose pretty damn hard with 60 million customers to lose. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, actually, if you yeah. can insulate yourself really, really well by, you know, consolidating and getting to a, a, a scale where, I mean, you could lose a state and Chase would still be fine, you know, like in terms of like the, it could be devolved to Canada or something. I don't know. There would be some weird political, when, you know, if Trump comes back, that's going to be one of his policies, I'm pretty sure, you know, like, so, uh, but, but it's, you know, this could happen and Chase would still be great given the scale of operation that they've got and the, you know, the scale of customers that they have. So, I mean, I, I do think there will be more consolidation. I, I hope with that consolidation, it's, uh, it's it's different than the cycle that we saw before. I mean, we saw banks buying fintechs, um, you know, say sort of 2014, 2015, maybe a little bit earlier. And the challenge there was uh, when you acquire something you don't really understand how to run, then actually you can quickly ebb away the value of that. And yeah. I think that's the, yep. you know, the, the, the risk potentially with the changes that we've seen at somewhere like Silicon Valley Bank you know, Silicon Valley Bank customers banked with Silicon Valley Bank because Silicon Valley Bank understood technology, right? You know, they had people who got them, they had uh, a business that was similar to theirs, supporting theirs. Um, that's very different when, you know, HSBC or whoever acquire customers, you know, I know it's yep. different in lots of different yep. countries. So, so I think um, if you buy something and it's expensive, you better be sure you really understand how to run it. Because uh, if not, that value might ever weigh really, really quickly. Yeah, the story in HSBC of BC is still being written, even though they had a a great first uh, financial reporting. Um, you know, I, I look at uh, the marriage and you go, geez, that's not one I saw coming. So, okay, so as so we wrap up um, in a short segment here, what do you see as the biggest opportunity in retail banking today? Uh, I think the the biggest opportunity is moving away from self service, moving to way to towards a real service. Uh, I think people don't want to do banking. I think they want banking to be done for them. Um, so for me, that's the biggest opportunity. We move to self driving money. Yep. What's the biggest threat? Uh, I think the biggest threat in financial services, you know, retail banking, I, I think is is really like the existing way that things are done. Um, I think the the challenge there really is culturally, operationally, business model-ly, definitely not a word. Uh, I think that's the biggest challenge because almost the the reasons to change for some people are too difficult. You know what? And you've you've been on personal transformation uh, over your whole life in many ways, and and you know, changing behavior is not easy, and it sucks. And it usually is only done because something important happens to you as a person yeah. or you as a business that makes you change. And and finally, to use your terminology of jobs to be done, what are the three items? If you went into a, a retail bank today, and, and I realize every retail bank's 
you know, very different. But as you look at a lot of different banks in the industry globally, what are the three most important jobs to be done right now? Yeah, I think the first and foremost, I think, do you really understand your consumer? Um, I think the, you know, the brutal realities, the day-to-day lives are fundamentally different today and more complex now than they ever have been. Uh, so get to grips with what your customers' problems are is the first one. Um, do you actually have a digital operating model? Can you actually take something from the whiteboard or the strategy paper you've written to get sign off at your board? Can you actually do that? Because if you can't do it, it's a lovely picture, but you're not actually going to achieve anything. Um, and then the last one I think would be about focusing on your culture. Uh, how do you unleash potential of the people that you've got within your organization? Because every bank, you know, every company I've ever worked with, there are pockets of people who care deeply about solving customers' problems and, and probably genuinely really understand those problems better than anybody else in the world. The thing that gets in the way is the current organization. It's the current culture of that organization to make those things happen. So how do you gear up yourself to unleash their potential? Because if you do, you're going to be in a much better place. David, thank you so much. Um, Not that it's too hard to find you, but for those who might not have gotten it, how do people find out what your thoughts in your industry, both yourself and your organization, what your thoughts are today and what's going on in the banking world? Yeah, no problem at all. Uh, best place to find us is 11fs.com. Um, and if you want to check out the podcast, it's Fintech Insider. Just search for us anywhere you want to. If you want to find me, uh, do you know what? I've given up on most social media, if I'm honest with you, but you can find me lurking predominantly on LinkedIn these days. Um, but uh, just search for me there and always happy to connect. David, thank you so much. It's always good to get up together with you and, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It really helps us to get guests like we have today. Finally, be sure to catch the recent articles I've written for the financial brand and check out the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Haslidge, and audio engineer and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, the future belongs to those who see possibilities where others see peril. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.